believe it or not, I actually wrote a piece uh, for Jacobin that should be out soon about the movie we watched last week. Oh yeah, that movie. <laughs> <laughs> you've already you've already uh, suppressed it a lot, like uh, like some kind of uh, buried childhood trauma or something. Uh, yeah, believe it or not, I somehow had more to say about it. I feel like you probably had to cut about twenty minutes of audio in the final version, but because uh, we talked so much. But uh, to be clear, this is this is that one, uh, the reunited states. Yes, which which I genuinely did forget for a the, second. The masterpiece, the cinematic masterpiece, uh, brought to us by uh, executive producers Van Jones and Megan McCain, telling hard truths. Yeah, I felt I had more to say about it, and uh, I could only find two real reviews of it. I mean, I suppose there are probably more, but the the two major reviews I could find, I mean, one was a capsule review in the New York Times, which it was decently critical of it, um, just kind of pointed out how how thin the overall concept was, but it was, you know, only a few hundred words. And then I found another one in the Daily Beast that was a little little longer and more in-depth, and was basically taking the view that the film was sort of advocating, you know, negotiating with people who are you know racists and extremists and stuff like that and it was sort of a like you can't there's no negotiating with marjorie taylor green and like that that sort of republicanism uh, you know that was basically the argument and um you know i agree with that although i know right away what van jones and megan mccain would say if uh, if challenged on those grounds because i watched a clip they did about the movie on the view and you know they basically begin with the caveat that like well of course we're not talking about pandering to extremists or, or anything like that but then at that point like who are they talking about who are these mythical republicans that you're supposed to reach across well and and remember the film isn't really just about republicans right Right. I mean, it's about sort of, you know, dialogue and reaching across the aisle, like in general. Well, there's that opening montage where you see clips of, on the one hand, Charlottesville white supremacists, and on the other hand, Black Lives Matter protesters. And the movie is implying that, like, these are what what have happened to the great binary in American politics that is left and right. And we need to find a way to bridge this divide. But Apparently in that interview, what Meghan McCain and Van Jones are saying is, no, those two groups that we showed you, on the one hand, white supremacists, and on the other hand, uh, Black Lives Matter, which is positioned as being equal, those two groups are outside the sphere of regular discourse. And actually, the people who should be reaching across the aisle are people somewhere in between those fears. I suppose. I mean, they they would probably deny that they're drawing a direct equivalency between those groups. Um, and I mean, to be fair, you know, the film features a lot of people who are who are just incredibly boring. I mean, there's the guy that uh, whose whole thing is getting sort of young state legislators from both parties together to have conversations about what uh, the film doesn't really make clear, uh, yielding what outcomes. Again, the film doesn't really make clear. But, you know, it is also worth saying that, you know, there are people who believe that Black Lives Matter and MAGA are morally equivalent. Some of them, in fact, have perches on uh, big liberal networks and their books uh, sell as Heather's Picks at Indigo. Anyway, there's no point relitigating the whole film. Uh, I was just astonished. You know, it's it's not often that we watch a movie for this podcast, especially a real sort of bread and butter one like that, where I'm just sort of grinding my teeth the whole way through. And then you, of course, instantly forgot. It's not often that I we watch a film like that, and I think, oh, I I, I have more to say about this. I I absolutely must write something. Well, I'm glad you're writing about it because the sheer lack of attention it has received, the sheer lack of critical attention or discourse, is 
alienating when you compare it to the pedigree of the project the fact that it is this you know i i think it's a cnn production spearheaded by van jones and megan mccain and i feel this way about the filmmaker that we're going to talk about later in this episode (laughs) because she's someone who is by all measures except cultural impact and viewership one of the most successful documentary filmmakers of the last 20 years. You know, she's someone, uh, and, and I'll just keep you in suspense about who it is. But The real heads already know. <laughs> she's, she's someone who has spent 20 years having her work financed by HBO, broadcast to potentially wide audiences, and with seemingly unlimited access to the absolute A-list of the American political ecosystem. And nobody is talking about her work. There's no discourse, positive or negative, anywhere. Nobody has seen it, uh, except us. We're the only ones. Yeah, the filmmaker in question is very much uh, like our indie muse who we're going to, you know, we're going to popularize and bring to the masses. You know, it's like how Nick Drake's music, no one listened to it uh, when he was recording it. Decades went by and then it appeared in that Volkswagen commercial and suddenly everybody (laughs) was spinning Pink Moon, even though he'd been dead for more than 20 years. That's what we're doing with uh, the filmmaker in question. Well, I promise we've put the reunited states to bed now for good. Um, But just on the theme of, I don't know, uh, the political extremes in the Republican Party in particular, I was doing some work this week on a media narrative that has particularly uh, annoyed me. It's certainly not a new one. It's one that's recurred in various ways, you know, throughout the Trump presidency. And we're kind of still seeing it now. This is the idea that, you know, the real Republicans kind of need to take back their party. Last fall, uh, you know, there's a Nancy Pelosi quote that some people may remember where, you know, I think it came, I could be wrong, but I think it came after the first presidential debate, you know, where Trump did all kinds of appalling things. The debate that is that was just like a shouting match where no one could get a word in edgeways. You know, and Pelosi basically said, you know, one of my prayers is that Republicans will take back the party. The country needs a strong Republican party. It's done so much for our country. And to have it be hijacked as a cult at this time is a really sad thing for America. What is this? What is this about the Republicans that they don't care enough about what they believe in as a party, a legitimate party with beliefs and their view of the role of government? I pray that they would get us a grand old party again. So that was from last fall. Um, And amazingly, Pelosi said almost the exact same thing uh, at a press conference earlier this month. So after the Capitol Hill storming, Uh, it was that was on February 13th. She said much the same thing. So, you know, so this is something obviously you've seen kind of throughout the Trump presidency and really uh, from the very beginning of Trump's rise. You know, the idea that, you know, there's two Republican parties. There's this kind of like feral reactionary one associated with Trump. And then there's this, you know, respectable one that is really just about, you know, a principled view on the role of government. Republicans want a smaller government. They believe in states' rights, uh, etc., you know, there's the conservatism of William F. Buckley, which is uh, good and, and right and intellectually principled. And then there's the conservatism of Donald Trump, if indeed Trump counts as a conservative at all. So this narrative or the latest version of it's really been fueled by this. I think it can safely be called uh, a deluge of media reports over the past month that are that are basically uh, suggesting a substantial Republican exodus in the wake of the Capitol Hill uh, storming. I'm not sure if you've seen any of these, but, you know, there have been a number of reports. Uh, CNN has one or has it had a few NPR. They've really been popping up all over the place and they're reporting especially on 
changes in voter registration in various states. So, for example, 4,000 Colorado Republicans changing their registration in the week after January the 6th. And this is something that uh, is a phenomenon that's being uh, repeated in various uh, in various places. And the way that pundits are receiving this news, I mean, they're receiving it much as you'd expect. So, for example, Chris Saliza, uh, he wrote earlier this month, the January riot has clearly tarnished the GOP brand in the eyes of at least a decent sized chunk of those formerly aligned with the party. So on its face, you you know, you look at these numbers and you think there's got to be something, there's got to be something to this. Like maybe the Capitol riot, the Capitol storming, maybe that really was a kind of floor and that, you know, it represented like some kind of Rubicon uh, has, has been crossed that, you know, somehow wasn't crossed at any other point during the Trump presidency. That means that, you know, various people who identified as Republicans are, are just too disgusted to remain within the tent. But I decided to look into this in a little bit more detail, um, and I found that, you know, as far as I can tell, there is very strong evidence that uh, something like the opposite of this is true. And I want to give a hat tip here to a data journalist at The Economist uh, named G. Elliot Morris, who's been producing some really interesting analysis of, uh, of this phenomenon. And he points out, you know, among other things, the number of people actually changing their voter registration is very small in relative terms. I mean, we're talking like less than a percentage point. But more importantly, there's very real evidence that the reason people may be changing their voter registration, I mean, if you if you read these uh, news reports, you know, you find kind of man on the street interviews where people are saying like, you know, they're expressing disgust and stuff. But that's just anecdotal. Um, the, the empirical evidence suggests that something else is going on. And in fact, that a lot of people are actually disaffiliating because they're so angry that Republican leaders didn't stand by Donald Trump. A YouGov poll found that 90% of people who identify as Republicans were hoping Trump would be acquitted in the impeachment proceedings. And there's other evidence which suggests that a plurality of Republicans want it to become more conservative, you know, want the party to be more conservative, which probably just means, you know, more Trumpian. There's also, and, and this is very interesting, in Gallup polling, which I looked at, Measured against the entire history of Gallup's polling, uh, they've identified record support among Republicans for a third party, which, you know, doesn't suggest, I mean, Trump was calling or he was not calling for exactly, but sort of musing about the idea of a patriot party right after he lost the election in November, um, or excuse me, after the election was uh, was stolen by the satanic Hollywood pedophile cabal and its confederates. You know, he, he was teasing this idea of a patriot party. And, I, you know, I think Trump's people sort of had to distance themselves from that idea but if a record number of Republicans uh, wants there to be a third party, um, I mean, that would strongly suggest that, you know, people, if they are uh, no longer identifying as Republicans, it's not because they've, you know, there's some kind of moderate renaissance underway. It's not because this fabled Republican moderate that's been in exile for years is suddenly returning to be sort of the center of the GOP base. It's actually the exact opposite. Trump's defeat is radicalizing large sections of the Republican base. They're doubling down on all of the kind of idioms of the of the Trump era, all of the kind of reflexes that uh, the Trump created. So it's hard to know what to do with this information, right? I mean, I, I've, ri- I've written it up in a piece that should be out soon. And, you know, I do think that it's, you know, it's an important rejoinder to liberals who are in, you know, in some in some cases, welcoming these media reports as evidence that they're the long awaited return of, of the real uh, respectable conservative movement has finally arrived. But in terms of what it, you know, it heralds for the future of, of American conservatism and for the Republican Party, I mean, I just I just don't know. Given how kind of central Donald Trump has been, and, and not just, you know, as a political figure, but how central his personal affectations and just his personal style have been to conservatism as we've come to know it in America, um, you know, since 
2015, 2016. It's very hard to imagine, you know, some kind of transference occurring and some other Republican leader, you know, who else is like Donald Trump? Um, I can't think of a single person. But what seems very clear to me is that the ship for some kind of alternative to this sailed a really long time ago. And it sailed, by the way, before 2015, before Donald Trump ever declared. Trumpism was, you know, not a hostile takeover, as, as you know, Nancy Pelosi would say, or a hijacking. You know, it was the logical outcome of, you know, decades of, of stuff that was, in many cases, and actually this is relevant to the, to the film we watched today, but in many cases, shepherded and uh, applauded by conservative elites themselves, all this information infrastructure they set up, you know, all of the dog whistles that gradually became foghorns and all the rest of it, all of the kind of soft conspiracy theorizing that became less than soft. It's still beyond me how anybody could watch, you know, could have seen like Glenn Beck clips from 2010 or 2011 and been surprised by the rise of a figure like Donald Trump. But regardless, whatever the future of his affect and and kind of that as as, as an articulation of American conservatism Whatever the future of that is, whether he literally runs again or just remains kind of an influential figure um, or even, you know, fades altogether. I think really the, the, the question now is just how what comes next negotiates with a basically Trumpian frame for conservatism as opposed to Trumpism is over and something else is is coming. You know, I guess some people have, have speculated, I'm very skeptical of these claims, but, you know, that a figure like you know, Josh Hawley is going to figure out some kind of way of triangulating between sort of more respectable republicanism and, you know, the what might be called the economic populism of Trump's first campaign and, and, and thus sort of manage to hold together the Republican coalition that way. I'm very skeptical of that. But furthermore, if somebody were to actually succeed, I mean, let's let's say somebody uh, succeeded in doing in walking this very difficult political tightrope and some unknown figure came along and figured out that, you know, that you can actually, there is a way of triangulating between Trumpism and something that at least to to liberals and to uh, so-called moderates and people offended by Trumpism, you know, sounds distinct from it. I don't think that would be a good thing either. <laughs> I mean, it would just be, it, I'm sure lots of, I'm sure lots of pundits would love it. I'm sure lots of the people who are paid to represent conservatism in places like the National Review or at conservative think tanks in DC, uh, you know, in, in people in, in sort of those locations within the conservative movement, I'm sure they would love that. But would something like that actually defer kind of functionally or ideologically all that much from what we've known the past four or five years? I'm, uh, I'm incredibly doubtful about that. So Pennsylvania is losing a lot of its business. And right now we're sitting here, we're talking. Oh, here's another one. Go home to mom. Go home to mom. And your mother is voting for Trump. She's voting for Trump. Something that's been on my mind over the last week is how bad we've been to the celebs. There's been a lot of discourse over the last, well, the last couple weeks about the unfortunate cases of celebrities like Britney Spears, Lindsay Lohan, Mia Farrow, a range of celebrities from across the years who have been tainted and tarnished in the media, and that we're, we're all complicit in this. You, me, Perez Hilton... We're all complicit in this to some degree, probably Perez Hilton more complicit than you and me. Uh, When Britney Spears was having her downfall, I think the most I ever did was glance at the cover of People magazine when I was at Shoppers Drug Mart. A lot of this discourse has been sparked by two recent high-profile documentaries on big streaming services, uh, Framing Britney Spears and... Which I watched, You watched it. 
Oh, wow. D- d- did you like it? Actually, I did. I mean, I learned a lot about Britney Spears that I didn't know. My girlfriend and I watched it, and it is actually crazy, this kind of... I didn't realize she's been in this kind of... Uh, do they call it receivership for something like 10 years, even though she's perfectly able to function? She's, like, performing and recording and stuff. I think it might be... It's probably fair to call it a grassroots movement of uh, fans who've been who've been protesting this. Against my own instincts, I found myself kind of moved by what some of them were saying. The other one is Alan V. Farrow, which probably needs no introduction. We know what that's all about. And I've read some reviews of these projects. I've seen a lot of discourse around these projects, and there's kind of a baseline assumption in a lot of the discourse around them. Maybe this is starting to change, but there's an assumption that these documentaries are the products of a more enlightened society, you know, a more enlightened media specifically. Like, this is a media that understands how it propagated certain narratives in the past, fell hook, line, and sinker for certain uh, PR machines that caused harm and these are sort of revisionist documentaries that want you to to look back at that and understand that we're we're in a better place than that now Something that gets me a little bit skeptical about this is the fact that these are things that are being sold to us as part of a big trend in this kind of programming by gigantic media companies, companies like Hulu or HBO or or Netflix or what have you. Right. So it's media companies trading in a sort of because I was wondering as you were as you were laying this out, what the thread between these different things are only having seen one of them. But if I understand you correctly, you're expressing skepticism about the phenomenon of big profitable media companies trading in this kind of narrative of cultural redemption, which just so happens to exonerate organs and and outlets and businesses uh, sitting in the very location that they are. That more or less sums it up. And it also serves a dual function of being able to sell these old scandals a second, or in the case of Alan V. Farrow, maybe a third or fourth time back to us. You know, it's like, I think the motives of of the actual individual people who make these documentaries are for the most part, pretty pure. On the face of it, it's good that certain harmful old narratives are being interrogated. Well, the the thing that was crazy about watching the Britney Spears one was seeing the footage of her, not just as, you know, a young woman in her early 20s, but as a child, and just how much kind of basic sexism she was subjected to constantly. Like, there's an appearance uh, that she made on some, uh, some TV program or something, I think in the early 90s. And I mean, she was a child. And the first thing that the older male host says to her is, do you have a boyfriend? And, you know, you can imagine how he says it in this kind of tongue-in-cheek sort of way but then when she says no he just sort of carries on with the joke and like it's it's honestly pretty gross and there's like innumerable other things uh like that that appear in the film and and i agree with what you're saying generally but i do think you know if nothing else there probably has been a decline of stuff like that and that's to be welcomed anyway i'm tired of hearing about penitent celebrity journalism i think we should just like maybe get rid of celebrity journalism wholesale. Let's just, let, let's just abolish the industry. To me, the narrative might apply, you know, the narrative as it's as it's appeared in these, you know, three documentaries you kind of cherry picked. I mean, it might apply to the way that, you know, paparazzi, for example, or talk shows treat certain celebrities. But I mean, I don't think it applies more generally. If anything, I think, I mean, I, I don't know how you would quantify this, but it seems to me that mainstream media as a rule and the culture industry, it, it, you know, is very sycophantic towards celebrities generally. I mean, of course, that's intention with how much, you know, everybody loves a good celebrity meltdown, uh, you know, etc. Well, actually, 
you know, what's funny is this narrative that um, we have to be nicer to the celebrities, that we've harmed the celebrities in the past, kind of runs against another narrative, which is that we've been too deferential to celebrities, we've been too deferential to power, and this is how systems have been able to protect bad celebrities over the years. Like, like these are kind of two conflicting narratives, aren't they? That's true, and I mean, it very much depends on what we're talking about specifically, you know, whether, to, to what extent we're, we're talking about Hollywood or, or the wider phenomenon of entertainment journalism, because this issue of deference that you just brought up, I mean, what inspired uh, the thing I just said was more that I think there's been a growing kind of currency of celebrity in the culture more generally, particularly as it as it relates to politics. Politics have become more and more about deference, I think. They become more and more about investing in political figures as celebrities. And part of that has involved, you know, not just political journalists, but journalists who work in entertainment and in and in cultural journalism, writing about politicians like they would write about a, a top 40, you know, perform recording artist or something. Speaking of which, did you see that both Mayor Pete and George W. Bush are speaking at South by Southwest, that gigantic Texas-based film and music festival? I did. And uh, don't worry, folks, we will definitely... Definitely have an episode coming when the Amazon-produced Mayor Pete documentary comes out. Uh, we've got uh, actually something something exciting in the works for that whenever uh, whenever it finally happens. But I definitely have had you know Mayor Pete on the brain this week because you reviewed his memoir, did you not? Yeah, I wasn't quite sure whether to call it a memoir. I mean, is it a memoir when the previous book was written sort of eighteen months earlier? I don't know. Linda Lovelace wrote four autobiographies. I mean, he's still got some catch. <laughs> up to do that's right and you know samuel peeps and tony ben wrote down everything that happened to them (laughs) every single day they were writing memoirs every day but just on the on the mayor pete thing something i wasn't able to include in the uh or excuse me the secretary Pete. (laughs) sorry that's secretary pete to you sir he's even changed his twitter handle but just on the on the subject of my review of Trust America's Best Chance, something I wasn't able to include was, you know, I went back and I was looking at some of the kind of early journalism about Pete Buttigieg when he was kind of this unknown commodity. And, you know, if people knew anything about him, they knew he was this kind of hip, cool, progressive, uh, small town mayor. Uh, and he was a Democrat, but he's from the Midwest and he was a Christian and he's gay, and he's just like the most interesting figure who's like shaking up the political scene. And I was able to find stuff that literally appeared in the entertainment section of like the Los Angeles Times. And you get stuff like this. Uh, This is an actual quote from something in the LA Times. There's never been a presidential contender quite like South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, the gay Episcopalian, Maltese American millennial, an Afghanistan veteran who plays classical piano, speaks seven languages, and has emerged over the past few months as a legitimate challenger to blah, 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 blah. Although Buttigieg, 37, has hasn't told voters much thus far about how he'd govern a profoundly divided nation. We already know a fair amount about something almost as important, Mayor Pete's eclectic taste in pop music. So look, I don't want to beat up too much on the entertainment journalist who I assume just, you know, had a deadline they had to meet here. But I mean, this this is why I was bristling a little bit against what you were saying before, because it strikes me that this kind of paragraph is very much the hallmark of the kind of politics as fan fiction genre that's increasingly becoming, you know, the norm particularly on the on the liberal side of American politics. That passage I just read is basically saying, you know, we don't know anything about this guy or what he actually wants to do. But, you know, what if him being a tabula rasa is actually what, ma- what if the emptiness is is interesting? And plus, he has all these like qualities, all these boxes you can tick, you know, Ep- Episcopalian, classical music, Afghan veteran, Midwest, etc. Um, incidentally, Mayor Pete pitched himself very much in that way. I think I, I quoted on the show before the time he said, you're running for president, it's all about the alignment of attributes 
attributes that you have, like, you know, running for president, like you're selling yourself to HR. But so this was a, this is another paragraph I found. Just as Beto O'Rourke's admiration for Fugazi, modern punk's most passionate refuseniks, marks him as the archetypal Gen X candidate, Buttigieg's all-over-the-map tastes are emblematically millennial. The preferences of a listener whose impressionable years span the decline of the mail order record club and the dawn of file sharing. We caught Buttigieg between campaign stops to talk about Radiohead, garage bands, and listening to Pharrell Williams in a war zone. So you read stuff like that. And to me, like, it's hard to it's hard to see. One might say, you know, generally, there's been kind of a softening of, of the media's treatment of celebrities and kind of powerful, you know, public figures in general. And, you know, there there are clear ways, like I said before, that that's been not good. But I think you can see with something like this how, you know, a parallel phenomenon is that you end up with discussions of people, you know, and obviously this applies, uh, you know, this applies to politicians, not not celebrities, but people who are supposed to be, you know, Democrat, aspiring Democratic representatives who are supposed to be pitching themselves on the basis of, you know, a program or a set of values that they're there to help actualize on behalf of a particular constituency. And instead, you get stuff like this where it's basic and, you know, the famous Beto O'Rourke uh, profile in Vanity Fair, that cover story is very much in this vein too. You know, stuff where some journalists increasingly see their role as being an extension of, you know, the, the marketing department, the campaign team uh, of certain politicians, where, you know, their job is to explain, you know, the, the burden of power and the personal toll that running for office takes on you and, and stuff like that. It's not to ask these people difficult questions, and it's certainly not to kind of dissect the things that they say to look for contradictions or, or look for further questions questions that could be asked. Anyway, uh, those things are what I tried to do in my uh, in my review of Pete Buttigieg's book. And uh, Josh Barrow and Matthew Iglesias were uh, none too pleased about it. Matt Iglesias, you know, that's a name that I don't think about as much as I used to. You're not a subscriber to the slow, boring Substack. <laughs> well, you laugh, but uh, like a million people probably are. So. Yeah, more than listen to this show. He didn't like, you know, he uh, he clipped a section on Twitter of where I was talking about how Buttigieg makes, he makes these kind of, one, one thing he does uh, in the book is he makes these kind of like favorable noises about something, but doesn't really endorse it in like a clear or programmatic way. So for example, he talks about how uh, Nordic welfare states have you know high levels of taxation and public investment and you know i pointed out that i mean the thesis of the view is really that you can't you can't really trust anything Buttigieg says which is ironic given the title of the book because he changes you know what he says and how he says it changes you know constantly like every every 18 months there seems to be a new you know incarnation of Pete Buttigieg you know, now he's talking about Nordic welfare states and his first run for public office, which was barely a decade ago, he was courting the Tea Party. So there, there have been a lot of different Pete Buttigieg's and, and he, he himself uh, reminds us in the book constantly that trust requires consistency. This is an essential feature of trust. Before you trust someone, you know, there has to be like a consistent reciprocal pattern, which, you know, politically speaking is not something you get with a, a political figure like Mayor Pete. But furthermore, I just want to say this because I don't think this was clearly enough fleshed out in the review. Pete Buttigieg does not endorse the idea of Nordic welfare states. He does not. I can't remember the phrase that uh, Matt Iglesias used, but he said something to the effect of, you know, he endorses the creation of a Nordic style welfare state, something like that. The book absolutely does not do that. It makes positive noises about those things in order to endorse the much vaguer idea that taxation and public investment are good and that they might restore, you know, levels of trust chronically in decline, et cetera, et cetera. And I just want to say to Matt Iglesias, who I know is a, a regular listener to this show, uh, I thought Wonks cared about policy details. Was I wrong? Well, uh, unlike you, I'm not going to call out my many haters on the podcast. Instead, I'm going to be doing some hating of my 
Joan on uh, today's filmmaker, <laughs> who we alluded to earlier. Her name, that's right, is Alexandra Pelosi, the daughter of Nancy. We're dipping back into her filmography. I really do hope that we watch all of her movies by the time this podcast uh, burns itself out. That'll never happen. Over the last 20 years, she and her camera have created a chronicle of America, and we decided to go back to the year 2008, after a bitterly divisive election that saw the defeat of John McCain and the victory of Barack Obama. That's right, we watched Right America Feeling Wronged. I love the way you teed that up, as if from that description, people were sitting there listening, well, he must be talking about Right America Feeling Wrong, <laughs> the classic film that we've all seen and, and the film that we all love. A little while ago, I had the honor of calling Senator Barack Obama to congratulate him. Please. To congratulate him on being elected the next president of the country that we both love. In a contest as long and difficult. I love our country and I really feel like he earned the right to govern our country for all the service he's done and for his ideas and for his ability to make change, real change. How do you feel about America right now? I am scared to death. I'm, I'm proud. I'm proud to be here. I'm, I'm proud to have voted for McCain, but I'm very upset still. We have a, a brother in Iraq, um, and we just want him to be safe. Um, I just want to say, you know, we would like to do all of uh, Alexandra Pelosi's films on this podcast. And, you know, I'm pleased to say that our own Will Sloan is becoming a kind of minor scholar of her work. What Will was saying before was really not a joke. Uh, she's made a ton of movies, you know, with the financial support of HBO. I mean, she is a very successful filmmaker, judged in relation to the standards that you would normally judge a filmmaker. I don't know, but, I, you know, if I had to venture a guess, I, I, I'd imagine that if you're Nancy Pelosi's daughter, it doesn't particularly matter how, you know, whether your films succeed or not. I mean, to my knowledge, your film, like none of her films have been like hugely successful. Am I wrong about Well, I mean, it's hard to tell because I don't know what the viewership numbers on HBO are. I know that she has won some awards over the years. I'm gauging her level of success anecdotally because she's been at this for 20 years. She is Nancy Pelosi's daughter. She has access to the cream of the crop. She has access to everyone. She made a, a whole film following George W. Bush on his tour bus. And yet I never hear anyone talking about these films. Most times when I tell people that Nancy Pelosi's daughter is a filmmaker, they don't know it. I don't think these movies ever spawn any kind of discourse. And yet they keep coming. I mean, she, she's done a lot of stuff that has appeared on TV. I mean, there's stuff that we haven't even talked about. Like she did some kind of documentary or, or kind of short series uh, for HBO in 2019 called Goodbye Congress which aired on Vice News Tonight, which I assume is part of the uh, the Vice TV network. And that, that film was exit interviews with retiring members of Congress, including Paul Ryan, uh, who, you know, explained how uh, Washington works. She's also been on The Daily Show. Uh, she was on The Daily Show at one point last year. So as a filmmaker, you know, she is a pretty interesting phenomenon, somebody who's simultaneously ubiquitous, but who, you know, not many people have heard of. And, you know, and we're very much hoping to change that. We wanted to watch a movie from 2004 called Diary of a Political 
political tourist that was about the Democratic primary. We weren't able to find it. If anybody knows where we can find it, it's not on the regular streaming services. No one's put it on YouTube. There's no DVD that we can buy. If anybody has any access to Diary of a Political Tourist, I'd love to see it. Because on the Wikipedia page, there was an amazing quote, apparently at the premiere in Washington, D.C., Donovan, the 60s entertainer, Donovan, he said it was, and I quote, extraordinary. This is what Andy Warhol was doing in 1966 at the factory, sending teams of filmmakers out to ask real questions. And, uh, you know, I realize this is a digression from the movie we watched today, but I do want to like just kind of marinate in that quote a little bit because like, like Donovan was around in the 60s. Like, who does he think Andy Warhol was? Does he does he think Andy Warhol was D.A. Pennebaker? Warhol was making movies at the factory where celebrities sat in a chair and stared at the camera for 10 minutes without speaking. He wasn't a journalist. But anyway, we didn't watch that. We watched Right America Feeling Wronged. And she, in the waning days of the 2008 election, followed the McCain campaign. And I think most of what we're seeing in the film is like September, October. Yeah, there's it's it's in the air. People can feel what's what's about to happen. Yeah, the, the writing is kind of on the wall. And I think that informs the generally melancholy spirit of this film. Like most of Alexandra Pelosi's movies, this one sees the coastal elite, the daughter of Nancy Pelosi, trying to get out of her bubble, trying to explore these United States to find out what people who aren't like her understand, and maybe, just maybe, heal the political divisions. How does every film we watch have exactly that premise? And you know, it's funny, she's been doing this for 20 years, she's done countless movies with this premise, and she always starts back at square one in the next one, you know? The lessons never seem to stick, do they? I will say, I mean, there's not a lot to this movie, but I liked it more. I, the experience of watching it, you know, I, I liked it better than uh, watching uh, some of her other movies. You know, I feel like, you know, sometimes she has kind of a voiceover that editorializes, and it's always just the thesis of a movie like The Reunited States. Well, she doesn't really make herself a character in this one the way she does in other ones. In other ones, she's very like Michael Moore, very first person. Well, shucks, I just wanted to find out what people were doing, so I decided to uh, get in my car and find out she doesn't do any voiceover in this one it prioritizes the interviews with the mccain supporters yeah right and and there's no kind of i mean there's no editorializing about like i mean she pretty much just lets them speak for themselves and i guess like any editorializing is sort of implicit rather than explicit um and i mean as a result i i think there's not a lot to this film I mean, it's sort of like a 45 minutes of sort of just capturing you know different kinds of john mccain supporters who are kind of intermittently you know very anxious and you know Others are just incredibly racist, but it's not really a lot to it. But as a document from that time, I think it did capture something. And so uh, I liked it, at least on those terms. Well, I think you're right that it is a might better than some of the other ones of hers that we've watched. I liked that it was a little angrier than those other movies. Well, yeah, because I feel like uh, I'm already forgetting the name of the one we watched where, you know, it ends with her just like introducing her daughter to the daughter of some like guy that's patrolling the border or something. And she says, oh, I'm and I'm Nancy Pelosi's daughter. And turns out they get along just fine. Yeah, this one's a lot less sentimental than that, isn't it? Right, right. So many of these movies just sort of converge on like, I don't know, this 
this just empty pablum about like reaching across the aisle or whatever. And and yeah, this one doesn't do that, which uh, definitely made it a notch better than some of the others for me. But I will say that I I did still pretty much hate this movie. I thought that I thought that it <laughs> <Yeah>. was like. <laughs> I mean, if it, if it's twice as good as that one, you know, it's still two times zero. I mean, it's just it's just a random collection of aggrieved people that were encouraged to look at like they're zoo animals. And there's no structure here. It's just it's just a big soup. It's just a bunch of people ranting decontextualized and Pelosi kind of like smugly looking at them and saying, Puh, look at this. Can, can you believe these people? Yeah, the only structure the film really has comes in the form of little geographic tags that are tied to you know individual sequences but even calling these sequences is probably a, a bit much sometimes you've moved on to another setting and you and you don't even quite realize it I think the lack of general context is also a real problem for this film because it's true that it opens with the people in tears at McCain HQ you know they're saying John McCain earned the right to govern our country I, I'm so scared for the death of America like there's a guy sniffling and he's like you know I have a brother in Iraq and and, and we just want him to be safe. So it's, you know, this kind of uh, this kind of tearful setting as as people who are sort of Republican Party rank and filers, probably a lot of them canvassed and stuff like that, um, you know, receive the news of McCain's defeat. Take it very hard. But there's no wider context here. Just even a even a title card at the beginning or a little a little caption that mentions that, you know, the country is descending into what's beginning to look like the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. I think that would have helped. There's one very bemusing. I mean, it's a, it's it's a testament to how little that kind of context appeared that one person she interviewed starts talking about how her 401k is in decline and how she, you know everybody's really worried right now and i was thinking is this just like some unhinged republican supporter who's saying that like obama's not even in office yet and it's hurting her 401k like what is going on and then i remembered oh no wait the markets are melting down that's why this person's 401k is depreciating in value yeah, and the film just doesn't give you that kind of essential context that might make it like 10 or 15% more interesting. If the film has a structure at all, it's kind of structured around grievances. We meet a bewildering number of voters at McCain rallies throughout the film. Every now and then a, a character sort of emerges, but no character is on screen for more than three minutes, I would say. Most of the voters we see are Christian conservatives. They're against homosexuality, abortion. They like guns. They like guns. Some of them are concerned about Obama's ability to handle the war on terror and the war in Iraq. They are very much against the lamestream media. Yeah, they're all Fox News viewers, basically. They feel it's run by coastal elites who look down on them, don't understand them, don't want to understand them. This is the only section of the movie where I think any of these people made a point that almost drew blood. There was one guy who, who pointed out that he was watching Chris Matthews talk about Obama's yes. DNC speech. And he was saying, you know, Chris Matthews is saying about his speech that he, he got tingles watching it and i'm watching this thinking well this guy's an objective newsman this guy understands politics he's paid to understand politics you know he's saying this to talk about how the media is not as objective as it sells itself there's another guy who talks about you know obama got six time magazine covers mccain only got one and i mean i think th these are reasonable points they're, they're kind of buried in the middle of the film Katie Couric's famous interview with Sarah Palin is fresh in everyone's mind when most of this footage is shot. So there are a lot of bad words for her. And in fact, we meet Katie Couric very, very briefly when uh, Alexandra Pelosi asks her at a rally. How do you feel to be the most hated person in America right now? 
I don't think I am. Well, the media. How does oh. it feel to be in the most hated profession in America right now? I don't think we are. I think objective reporting and, and interviewing is a really important component of a democracy and a part of the process that even though we're reviled, it should be revered. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting to see, you know, how that interview specifically was was received by people who, you know, liked Sarah Palin. Like for them, it was just another example of sort of like coastal condescension towards them. And I, I think some of the testimonials uh, in this film do really give you a sense of just like the extent to which the Republican Party and kind of support for the Republican Party is just powered by sort of culture war grievance. A feeling of being excluded and disrespected by the real power brokers in the country, you know. The thing about that, I mean, it's very complicated because the thing is like the the liberal media thing is really like a myth in the sense that like, you know, I've been to like conservative movement gatherings and they truly believe that like the mainstream media is like, you know, rigidly socialist, especially like like publicly owned uh, media like uh, the CBC or, or the BBC. That stuff is, it's ideological bastions of socialism. Hollywood is a bastion of socialism. MSNBC is giving a platform to socialists, all that kind of stuff. I mean, and that's that's all nonsense. The media is not left-wing by any stretch. Um, and it's not even liberal in the sense that a lot of people understand the word. But it is, particularly the United States, you know, culturally liberal in the sense that somebody who works as a reporter at a, ma- a major newspaper somebody who's, you know, an anchor or a reporter at a major network, much more likely to be a Democrat than a conservative or Republican. And even if they're not a particularly partisan Democrat, or they don't identify as one, they're much more likely to be culturally encoded liberal based on kind of their level of education and and just their kind of general background and and where they live. And yeah, they, they typically come from privilege. Yeah, that's right. And the thing is, you know, liberals very much lean into this very aspect of the culture war. We were talking about, um, you know, they're, they're, a lot of their politics, a lot of what they do is just the inverse of this. So instead of it's the elites, you know, looking down on us, it's, well, damn right I look down. Look at these rubes and yokels who don't know a damn thing. I mean, there's there's one scene in this where Pelosi is talking to some, like, child, basically, who has a shirt that says socialism sucks. And she's like, you spelled it wrong. And then, you know, the kid can't, she asks him what socialism is, and the kid's just, like, stumbling. And he's like, it's the views of Hitler. It's the median between communism and another view that I don't, I don't know what that is. So there, there, I, f- I felt like there was a bit of this uh, sort of coastal condescension in this scene. Uh, but incidentally, I'd love to, I'd love to hear Alexandra Pelosi's definition of socialism. But, you know, we talked about on the podcast a few weeks ago, the sort of recent Democrat response to QAnon, where you have senior Democrats saying stuff like, the GOP can be the party of college educated people or can be the party of QAnon. And, and something like that, you know, really shows you how much the culture war is very much like symbiotic. And it's, you know, between the, you know, the leaderships of the two parties and, you know, the media networks that support them. The right wing of that culture war, you know, you get a, you get a decent look at, at how it works and how people think from this movie. Katie Couric is not the only celebrity who shows up. We also see Hank Williams Jr. singing a song about the liberal media at several campaign stops. Not his best work, I would say. We see Arnold Schwarzenegger in Ohio. Oh, I loved the Arnold appearance. I mean, I'm not going to try to do Arnold, but he's like, I left Europe four decades ago because socialism has destroyed opportunities there, which I don't think the Austrian welfare state was why Arnold left uh, left Europe, but it certainly gets the crowd riled up. It was very funny to see. We also see Sean Hannity very briefly, who's greeted like a rock star in Beaver, Pennsylvania. And he, when he's surrounded by the crowd, points to Alexandra Pelosi and said, hey guys, you know, that's Nancy Pelosi's daughter. 
Oh yeah, well, she says, you hear her say off camera, you're going to get me lynched in a sort of jokey way. And then he goes like, ah, nah, nah, nah. She's 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 a great person or, you know, she's a very nice person or something like that. Obviously, I don't know exactly what's going on in that exchange because I don't know how well these two know each other. But I think one possible interpretation is that actually, you know, Sean Hannity and, and Alexandra Pelosi get along just fine because a lot of these people actually do get along just fine. Well, I actually have proof that they get along fine because Sean Hannity, was one of the more than 100 political and media figures who appeared in Alexandra Pelosi's 2017 film, The Words That Built America, which, I mean, you know, Donovan compared her to Andy Warhol, but I think this film is a much more rigorous piece of experimental filmmaking than even (laughs) Warhol's were. Uh, it, it, It is simply 100 people reading from the U.S. Constitution. The people range from Joe Biden to both George Bushes to Kevin Bacon to the Clintons, to Ted Cruz, to Robert De Niro, Laura Dern, Morgan Freeman, John Hickenlooper, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I'm just reading from a list here of all the people who are in this, I'm sure, agonizingly boring film where they just read passages from the Constitution. And uh, Sean Hannity is among them. I feel like everything we watch or might watch for this show fits perfectly into that tweet format where, you know, the the, the first picture is the Fifty Shades of Grey guy going, my, de- my desires are unusual. And then the second is the woman replying, so show me. And then the third is just whatever god-awful nonsense we make ourselves watch. One last thing on this. According to IMDb, Donald Trump is one of the readers. I do not see Bernie Sanders' name in here. God, we are going to have to watch this film, aren't we? I, which is conspicuous in its absence. I don't know. Maybe maybe Bernie Sanders declined. I don't know. But it would be really funny if she invited Trump and all these other people and not him. Anyway, back to the main subject of this episode. The film gets darker as it goes along. We follow Alexandra Pelosi into the Deep South, where race is a particularly huge issue during this election. We meet a group of men in a trailer park who flat out state that they are not interested in the idea of a black president. They rant about political correctness. They rant about how they're not able to hang up the Confederate flag anymore. Oh, okay, so this guy was my favorite because... You know, yeah, she she spends a lot of time in the South. And so, like, the kind of Republicans she's talking to are the kinds who, like, you know, this one guy is like, yeah, I'm, I'm old school. You can't fly the Confederate flag anymore. Can't do something no more. Everyone gets offended by it. Uh, when, when did this country get so chicken shit? And he starts listing things like, you own guns in this country if you drink beer? If you go to titty bars in this country? Direct quote. For some reason, you're a bad person. It's like, they don't want you hunting no more and killing no Bambi and all that shit. And it's like, yeah, I just imagine continuing. It's like, yeah, and you, when you don't pay your child support, when you have like a million DUIs, when you won't stop shoplifting despite making $100,000 a year. It's- they won't let you rent pornos at the video store anymore because the late <laughs> fees on the last one you took out, you still haven't paid yet. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. I was able to find that guy funny, but but a lot of the other people are, I mean, it's really not funny. I mean, here I think you do get a sense of, you know, one of the, one of the major reasons why Obama's victory really was so culturally significant, you know, because America remains such a deeply racist country and there are people that will tell a filmmaker like on camera, they'll call Obama the n-word and they'll say like i i don't think i don't think a black person should be president i don't think women should be able to vote there's one guy who says to her that he doesn't think she should be able to vote obama's victory whatever else you could say about it was a real repudiation of stuff like that how did you like that scene in mississippi where she's like talking to some guy at a gas station and then we see two black men who are nearby who kind of take umbrage to this and one of them says something like you know here here you come down
down to Mississippi to record some white boy saying the N-word. Like there isn't racism in New York, like there isn't racism in D.C. Where do you get off, you know, he says something like, shame on you, white liberal lady. I think he says something about how she's specifically like trying to tarnish Mississippi. And I I thought this was very interesting. And I was pretty sympathetic to these guys. And I was actually kind of surprised that she included this scene in the final cut. It's one of her better artistic decisions, I would say. Yeah, it was uh, was very good. I was was glad to see it. It was one of the most interesting. It was one of the only bits of texture in this entire movie. Towards the end of the film, you know, we start getting the stuff about, you know, how Obama's a Muslim. Uh, he's the Antichrist, the literal Antichrist. He, he, he's going to get sworn in on the whole Quran. And finally, the film's Boschian landscape um, heats up to the point that we start seeing incidents of violence outside rallies. We see a guy uh, running over and, like, tackling a guy with a sign that he doesn't like. We, we see angry protesters. We see one person who says... You know, I think we are at war, but it's not in Iraq. It's right here in this country right now. Oh, I, I love that guy. That was the, I think he's supposed to be a Republican, but he's the guy that's there to be like, ah, oh, shucks, you know, some people are just ruining politics for the rest of us. Some of us, mm-hmm. some of us, some of us just like a good old debate and, you know, supporters for both parties are making their parties look bad. I'm surprised he didn't get a whole movie of his own after this, to be honest. The film ends as it must with Obama's victory. And, you know, we see like maybe two or three seconds of footage from Obama's famous victory speech on a TV, but we see it broadcast from McCain headquarters and the rather deflated reception there. It was sort of interesting to see this footage. You know, the the Obama victory is so iconic and so memorable. And you see that footage all over the place as like an example of like a, a American splendor, American grandiosity. When I watched that, it was in a university dorm in the common room and people had tears streaming down their faces. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then moments after it finished, everybody streamed into the quad, like embracing and you know, I went to the University of Toronto. This wasn't even in the United States, yeah. and that's how people felt about it. So it actually was pretty interesting. See it through another lens where people were crying, but for the very opposite reason. Despite these positive comments, I do overwhelmingly think that this is a bad movie. I think it doesn't have a lot to say. I think the interest that it has is mostly accidental and also mostly just like, yeah, if you if you take a camera around to a bunch of rallies and and record 50 people talking and and throw it all together, which is essentially what she did here. Like, how can that not be an occasionally compelling document of a time and place she passed the base level yeah i I think you know we've done a lot of films like this a lot of these kind of uh aspiring kind of cinema verite documentaries about politics where there's no real editorializing no voiceover any kind of thesis is sort of um sort of implicit as opposed to explicitly stated and i think we may be arriving at something like a unified theory of them this may get me into trouble if we if we've said anything to contradict it on a previous episode but My general feeling is that we don't like films, whoever makes them, films about politics where there's no voiceover. Because either they don't have anything to say or they can't help just kind of idolizing their subjects uncritically. So, you know, I I think a film like this, the biggest knock on it is it doesn't really have anything to say. But thinking back to the famous D.A. Pennebaker documentary, uh, or I think he made it with somebody else, but The War Room, the one that where, you know, James Carville and George Stephanopoulos are the stars. You know, the problem with that movie is it's just it's just so in awe of its of its subject, these kind of backroom boys who are, you know, masterminding the complexities of, of modern politics, you know, from behind the scenes. You know, like it ends up celebrating stuff like The Spin Room. It ends up just kind of very 
incredulously celebrating various things that are making politics dumber and more simplistic and less nuanced and making it more into kind of vocation for a certain kind of ambitious ladder climber as opposed to something that's about principles at all. I feel like this is a criticism we've leveled at other movies that don't have a voiceover. I don't think it necessarily applies to films that aren't about politics. Something we've wanted to do for a long time, uh, which we will do at some point, is the wonderful film, also by Dia Pena Baker, Don't Look Back, which is, of course, a, a no-narration film about Bob Dylan. Definitely one of my favorite movies, but I think by virtue of its subject, it doesn't really need a voiceover narration in the same way. Another film we watched with no voiceover is Primary, which captures, I'm forgetting if it was Minnesota or Wisconsin, and the primary between John F. Kennedy and Hubert Humphrey, following them both around. You know, it, it is interesting, uh, is an interesting document. But you know, these films, they didn't have narration, but they did have structure. This film, this Alexandra Pelosi film, there's a character who's introduced maybe a third of the way in, who's named Elaine Ternero, who represents the Franklin County Value Voter Coalition. She's the captain of it. And she goes door to door in Ohio, trying to rally neighbors for... John McCain. I gotta say, I, I almost liked her until uh, until she said that thing about her neighbors. Until the, yeah, she, there's a moment where she like goes up to Alexandra Pelosi and, and like whispers at her like, Th those neighbors, like, can I say they're, they're lesbians? Um, they, they just put up the Obama sign. And after that, we see her at like a lunchroom, I think some kind of lunchroom where she's like trying to rally the people in line like hey hey can we get you to vote for john mccain he's he's the pro-life candidate and there's a black man in line who says yeah but he's not a pro-black candidate and they get into a bit of a back and forth actually several black people in line saying you know he's just like he's just like george bush all those republicans they don't care about black people this strand of the movie is like three minutes long maybe four minutes long and imagine if the movie had actually been kind of structured around this woman or structured around her and two or three other characters. Well, it's funny because I was going to say, I mean, that is a device. I mean, even the film we watched last week, uh, The Reunited States, used exactly that device. And a lot of these films do that. They they follow around particular characters. Movies use it because it works, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think on a technical level, it can, it can make a movie a, a more enjoyable set. But I, I was more commenting just on the general phenomenon of, politics documentaries without voiceover narration because i think you know perhaps there are exceptions that we've we found uh, in the course of doing this show but i think as a general rule more partisan documentaries where the filmmaker has to kind of stick their neck out and state a thesis are almost always better not just as political documents you know not just as as films that do a good job of articulating certain values like Michael Moore's Sicko or Roger and Me, but they're just more interesting on a technical level. I think we had a number of problems with Bowling for Columbine when we rewatched it, but I mean, you can't deny that it's an incredibly entertaining film. No, sadly, you're right. It is. And it's and that's precisely because Moore has such a strong viewpoint and he's so hostile to to guns and gun culture. Yeah, I mean, I think you can have a thesis without necessarily being a character in the movie or stating it didactically in voiceover narration. I think the D.A. Pennebaker movies have a thesis. Even if in the case of the war room, it might be a thesis that uh, we chafe against a little bit. 
this movie though is like i don't know if it has a thesis it's basically goddamn america which which is of of limited interest i don't even know if that is the thesis having seen other films by the the same artist i sort of feel like if if the film is saying anything it's saying you know it's vitally important that we try to understand people who don't think like us if it's saying anything i feel like it is just another sort of toothless pain to like post-partisanship and reaching across the aisle well i do think it is a bit better than her other movies and uh primary reason for that is because even if that is the, th- the thesis, she let her hatred flow. Uh, she made her angriest, most unpleasant film. And I would like to see her lean into that a little bit more. I'd like to see less of that cloying stuff that you see in the rest of her movies. I'd like to see her lean into the coastal elite persona <laughs> just a little bit more and like own it. <laughs> we need somebody who's, who's, who's for the unborn. Uh, McCain's pro-life. I mean, nothing's spoken about anybody else if nobody's around because, you know, Okay, he's not pro-black, though. Oh, I think he is. I, I, I he's don't just like Bush. He don't care about us. You know what? I'm not voting for no Republicans, so it don't matter. Pro-life, whatever they do, I'm not voting for no Republicans. It's time for them to go. I'm sorry to feel that way. Oh, I'm not. Well, I think we safely put that one to bed. Another politics, what a concept movie safely in the can but before we let you all go uh we do have a few plugs as always uh you can find extra episodes one extra episode a week now on patreon we're also now putting up interviews there so these are interviews that uh you know are kind of conducted outside of the realm of the show by me with people like Kate Aronoff, who I recently talked to about uh, Joe Biden's climate policy, Kate Aronoff of the New Republic I talked to Will Summer uh, of the Daily Beast about QAnon Probably the most succinct and informed discussion of QAnon you can find anywhere. Uh, I talked to the economist Marshall Steinbaum about the right-wing conquest of, of the economics discipline. I talked to Edward Onweso Jr. from Motherboard about the whole GameStop controversy. So we're, we're putting stuff like that up there, too. Our superdelegates, by the way, voted on our last Patreon episode. And collectively, uh, well, a, a plurality of them chose Bernardo Bertolucci's The Conformist is anti-fascist masterpiece from 1970, which I'm very glad they chose, and I'm very glad we watched it. Right. Because America is a constitutional republic, not a democracy, we've created a second tier above the Al Gore tier called the superdelegates. Both have access to all of the same content, but the superdelegates get to propose movies every single month uh, and then vote on them in a two-stage process that includes a runoff and then we absolutely have to do the thing that is selected so if you want to torture us uh, you can subscribe at the superdelegate level which is ten dollars a month i also wanted to say that if you've if you've been listening to the free episodes and you've kind of been on the fence about subscribing uh, now might be a good time because we're about to attempt our first ever live stream uh, that's right michael and us nation is going for full spectrum dominance and expanding its reach to platforms like youtube and twitch uh, where we've set up a channel, uh, the link of which is going to be shared on our Patreon soon. This Saturday, February 27th at 6 p.m. Eastern, uh, we're going to be doing a live stream where we all watch a movie together. Uh, should I say what the movie is? I guess I should. The movie is Batman Forever. Uh, we, we will not be... <laughs> 
providing the movie with you. Uh, we're all going to watch it together, though. We're all going to uh, sync it up together like a riff tracks. And, and you, you can you can join us in the experience. Uh, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I really want to be friends with these guys. Well, this will give you an opportunity to do that, to, to, to watch a movie with us. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I will fill the air with my memories of seeing Batman Forever theatrically. God, just one of the best days of my life, thinking back on it now. Yeah, you'll get to hear about all that and more. Uh, I, I will say we did want to actually broadcast the film, but uh, we've been assured by a number of people that uh, doing so will have our Twitch channel taken down immediately for copyright reasons, so we can't do that. Uh, rest assured, we've uh, we've experimented a bit, and we're confident this can work. I'm also going to be broadcasting some gaming on our Twitch channel, which really has nothing to do with the show, but uh, I'll probably be talking about politics and other stuff while I do it. So if that sort of thing interests you, just another reason to subscribe at patreon.com slash us. And that's good until the OnlyFans account starts. Uh, I'm working hard day and night. If you're a Patreon subscriber, we hope to see you this Saturday. And if you're not, we hope you'll consider subscribing. Now watch this drive. Riddle me this, riddle me that. Who's afraid of the big black bat? In an uncertain world, in a chaotic time, justice wears a mask. Forever.